Dynamic History Salem, a podcast that tells the stories of Salem's dynamic and incredibly diverse history, and the people who made those stories meaningful. I'm your host, Rebecca, licensed Salem City Tour Guide. Thank you for joining me for the second episode dealing with the 1914 Great Fire of Salem. Today marks the 107th anniversary of that fire that changed the lives of so many Salemites and the physical landscape of the city. In the first episode, I mentioned that this fire occurred as one of the last of an unfortunately long line of urban fires to destroy lives, livelihoods, and buildings in American cities during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. By the 1890s, a social-political movement called progressivism had emerged in reaction to the urban landscapes and economies that had built up during the 19th century in America. Immigrants were pouring into the U.S. in search of work, and America's growing urban centers, such as Chicago, New York, and Philadelphia, were struggling to respond with proper housing. It wasn't only the new immigrants flocking to the cities, but also migrants from rural areas in the United States came for the chance to make more money to send back to struggling family members. Many progressives saw themselves as both moral reformers and scientific efficiency experts, simultaneously attempting to use both new scientific and technological advancements, as well as a Protestant work ethic and a sense of moral propriety to help newcomers to each city stay on the straight and narrow, so to speak. This context of the progressive era matters when we talk here about the Salem fire, because the city's response to the fire reveals the tensions that were inherent within progressivism, and also allows us to consider how Salemites of different social classes experienced that response. Social historian Jacob Reams notes in his analysis of the fire that there were, quote, tensions inherent in progressive ideology. Reformers wanted to rescue and relieve people, but they sought to make the cost of that help the loss of autonomy and control. This inherent tension that Reams mentions has to do with the fact that by the progressive era, things are happening on huge scales in American cities. Because so many people are condensed within just a few square miles in most large cities at this time, the whole geographies of states are altered to provide drinking water, food, and sanitation to them, let alone transportation and medical care. When people who are used to getting help or trading goods and services locally from their neighbors, essentially, it's hard to ask them to turn their autonomy over to some kind of government entity, perhaps like a board of health, a police force, or in the case of the fire, the militia and the state government. Leading up to the Salem fire, Salem firefighter Arthur B. Jones reported that reformers had already warned in years prior that the tenements, or large, cheaply constructed apartment buildings, in the Point neighborhood were at high risk of being destroyed by the fire. They were tall, poorly ventilated, wooden, and had wooden fire escapes. These kind of structures were common to many cities at the time, by the way. Though the fires leading up to 1914 in larger cities had led to some increased fire prevention and updated fire codes. Workers in the mills of Salem, such as Namkeg Cotton, lived in the Point neighborhood because it was close to work and it was what they could afford. But that didn't mean that it was safe. As Jones notes in his book about the fire, Salem had, quote, defective building laws, narrow and crooked streets, 
poor water pressure, and lack of systematic inspection of buildings, with card record of the same. The motives of those who attempted to better conditions were misunderstood, end quote. Jones details several people who tried to change building construction laws and infrastructure to improve the fire prevention in Salem, but whose attempts were voted down. This is hardly surprising, given that many urban fires preceding Salem's caused a great deal of alarm in those who would reform cities, and also given that local politics often made discussions of these reforms come to a standstill. This conversation was not unique to Salem. Keep in mind that the deadliest factory fire in U.S. history had only just happened three years prior, in 1911 at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in Greenwich Village, New York City. 123 women and girls and 23 men died in that fire. In that case, the fire escape unfortunately collapsed, plunging many workers to their deaths. And key outside doors were locked during the workday, trapping many others in the upper floors. The ladders of the fire trucks that arrived quite speedily only reached to the sixth floor of the building, and so even those who came to the rescue had to watch many workers jump to the street below and perish. Thankfully for the residents of Salem's Point neighborhood, the fire took five and a half hours to reach their homes. So much of the rescue and recovery work of the fire involved helping residents save their items from their houses rather than their lives. Accounts of this recovery effort by progressive-leaning middle-class, elite, or reporters focus on the efficiency and expertise of the militia in their aid. Historian Reams notes that Montaigne Perry's account of the fire, which I referenced in the previous episode, speaks of the dire situation in need of organized experts to prevent utter chaos. It was, quote, a scene of seemingly hopeless confusion, with the imperative, insistent need for men of recognized authority to dominate the situation, end quote. Perry, who was a she, by the way, not a he, as I called her previously, represents a clear progressive perspective here of wanting anxiously for professionals and experts to arrive to take control, bring order, efficiency, and promote morality. Among the middle class and elite officials, such as officers in the militia and local factory owners and politicians, there was this anxiety that looting, lack of sanitation, and disorder would take over in the absence of official regulation. Within days of the fire, the city and state officials had voted to appoint a committee of 14 to oversee relief efforts. The militia declared martial law and divided the city into districts, and the Red Cross came in to help oversee health and nutrition, including milk stations for babies. Local, state, and federal officials butted heads a bit as it was decided who would sit on the Committee of 14 and who would oversee relief efforts on the ground at the two main refugee camps in Forest River Park and Bertram Field. Salem politics played a part as ongoing tensions erupted between the Catholic Democratic Mayor Hurley and his supporters and the Protestant Yankees in the city. The Salem fire also had the attention of U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, who quickly wrote to Salem promising help and soon requested that Congress approve a $200,000 appropriation in federal relief. The local and national Red Cross disagreed about who should be in charge on the ground in Salem, and as a result, the National Red Cross actually lobbied Congress not to pass the appropriation. As Reams notes, it passed the Senate but only narrowly passed in the House. 
As is evident, in this era of large organizations sprouting up to protect the welfare of the populations of Americans, agreement among them about who would take charge was sometimes lacking. As a side note, the Salem Fire's federal disaster appropriation set a new precedent for the federal government sending aid for those who had not only lost their home to disaster, but also their job. Just as 18 Salemites were made homeless by the fire, 10,000 were also out of work overnight. Disagreement already existed at the time as to whether the federal government should aid people who lost their jobs through disaster. Local strikes and unions were in the news a lot at this time, as huge populations of working-class Americans fought for safer and more secure work. So, among many, Wilson's appropriation of federal funds to aid Salem's unemployed workers was controversial. Local business owners and officials tried really hard to encourage Salemites to stay and to wait for the factories to be rebuilt. But the federal government did end up finding jobs for 1,200 of those workers, some of which were outside of the city or even outside of the state. Many other displaced families went to stay in surrounding towns with friends, relatives, or even strangers who had immigrated from the same country. The Red Cross estimated that only about 19% of those who lost jobs and homes in the fire would have been considered American at the time, or born in the United States a couple of generations back. That left a large population of recent immigrants who were affected, and many of them ended up utilizing local connections through their own churches and their aid societies to find relief. Financially speaking, many of these folks had to find work immediately, wherever it was, in order to support their families. Of those families affected by the fire, 43% were French-Canadian, 20% Irish, 6% Polish, 5% Italian, 4% quote-unquote Hebrews, and 2% Greek. They were eligible for the federal aid as well, but they were used to finding help from their neighbors, and so many of them continued to do so. Historian Jacob Reams notes that as these immigrants negotiated their way through the bureaucracy of local and state and federal aid, they did their best to maintain their own local connections through their own organizations. The experience of the fire was likely useful in workers' strikes and union negotiations that would follow in the 1920s and 30s in Salem, as Salem workers and American workers all over the country continued to lobby for fair pay and fairer work conditions. But those changes were yet to come. For those Point residents who stayed in Salem after the fire, they spent one week to about a month in one of the relief camps alongside the militia. In the aftermath of the fire, there was, as I mentioned, a great fear of looting and of disease. Reams points out that given the heat of the fire, it was actually highly unlikely that there was anything available to loot in the burned district, but the order was there that looters were to be shot on sight. The fear of disease was not totally unwarranted because the weather turned cold and rainy after the fire, leaving thousands of people in muddy tent camps. Given that public health was a shiny new profession in the early 20th century, however, efforts for sanitation were thorough and contagious disease didn't prove to be a problem. It did mean, though, that the working class were now not only obeying rules from their employers while at work, but they were also under their watchful gaze in their new canvas homes. 
See, the militia by and large consisted of men in the same social class as the employers, and some of the employers of these workers actually were militia members. So these folks who organized and watched the camps, they meant well, of course, don't get me wrong, but it all goes back to that progressive desire to reform. It was encompassing everything. Can you imagine your boss giving you advice on when to feed your baby, what household tasks your wife should be doing, and how often you should empty your garbage? On top of that, reporters and state officials keep riding through camp to observe how well you're doing, asking when you'll go back to work, and are sometimes also followed by tourists from out of town who have come to gawk at the fire damage and your new canvas home. It must have been a lot to process, to say the least. Lovely things happened in the fire's aftermath, too, though. Ward Baking Company donated two tons of bread in one day. Cobb, Bates, and Yerksa donated 156 gallons of coffee. Hood donated 1,000 pints of milk. When the fire started, 16 women telephone operators were on duty at the switchboard, and all the others in the surrounding area were called in immediately to handle the deluge of phone calls, coordinating relief efforts, and letting families and friends know each other's whereabouts. Telephone workers immediately set to work repairing the lines that had gone down when the railroad bridge on Highland Avenue fell, taking a third of the lines down between Boston and the entire North Shore. Enlisted men reported almost immediately to Salem's armory as the fire began and organized relief efforts even before their officers arrived, having been away at a training session. Anyone with a car offered to transport militiamen and aid workers back and forth across the city, and local nurses and doctors came from area towns to help before the Red Cross even arrived. Salemites' first instinct seemed to be help first and ask questions later. Though the efficient order of the militia and other officials predominated in the weeks after the fire, I think it's significant that so many individual efforts by neighbors and strangers were the first response. And thankfully, the fire was the wake-up call that was needed to change some of the fire regulations. Salem City Council voted on June 29th. Quote, All roofs shall be constructed, altered, or repaired, shall be covered with slate or other incombustible material, and the gutter shall be of metal or covered with metal, end quote. Chroniclers of the fire like Arthur B. Jones and Montaigne Perry, as well as newspaper reporters and local ministers, wrote and preached about how, after the disaster, Salem would rebuild and be better than ever. Not everyone would get to enjoy those improvements in the same ways, of course, but I think the 1914 Salem fire is a great example of how, in the moment of real crisis, people's first instinct is usually to help. As humans, we don't always remember in the weeks and months that follow a disaster when questions of control, authority, and responsibility come up. But hey, we keep trying, don't we? And that's what matters. I'll end this episode with a verse that Arthur B. Jones includes in his account of the fire. They came and helped us in our need. Their names we never will forget. For in these days of Russian greed, the helpful spirit liveth yet. Thank you so much for listening, and have a wicked good day. In case you're interested, the sources I consulted for this episode are 
The Salem Fire by Arthur B. Jones, The Gorham Press, Boston, 1914. The Great Fire of 1914 by Barbara Pero Campus and the Phillips Library at the Peabody Essex Museum, The History Press, Charleston, 2008. The Salem Fire Relief by Montaigne Perry, a collection of reports from the Salem Evening News, printed in 1915 and also available online through Salem State's Digital Commons. Disaster Citizenship, Survivors, Solidarity, and Power in the Progressive Era by Jacob A. C. Reams, University of Illinois Press, Chicago, 2016. For fascinating accounts about individual fire survivors, I highly recommend consulting the accounts from the time of the fire, both in the books that I just mentioned and also in the Salem News. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dynamic History Salem. <laughs>